Welcome to the Fast Track of Innovation, the data-driven podcast. Here, data isn't just numbers, it's your superpower. Sparking stories of success from bites to breakthroughs. Dive deep into insights from the Data-Driven Conference, where data heroes assemble. Ready to supercharge your data journey? Strap in, it's time to get data-driven. Sponsored by Reltio. Reltio's AI-powered data unification and management cloud capabilities encompasses entity resolution, multi-domain SaaS, master data management, or MDM, and 360 data products. Reltio helps enterprises transform poor quality data from disparate sources into unified, trusted, and interoperable Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast. I'm Chris Detzel and I'm Anj Kanwar. Anj, how are you today? I am very well. How are you, Chris? Doing well. I'm really excited about our very first podcast. And so what we want to talk about today is this trends of 2024. Yeah, I got and a new year coming up. Yeah, we do have a new year coming up and everybody wants to know what's going on in, in the data management field. And so Yep. We have yep. you on today to talk about some of that stuff. What do you think? Yeah, I would love to. would love to. This is all I think about every single day. So I would love to share it with you and uh, with uh, people listening in. Great. Let's start with the first trend. And it's going to be, by no surprise at all, generative AI. 2023 was the breakout year. It's all it generative AI. I, I think there's a rule that if you're at dinner with friends or heck, even with family, eventually generative AI will come up. It is just simply a matter of how long it takes to get to that conversation. I agree. And the question I have around that is, how do you think AI or generative AI is going to change the landscape of data management, particularly in terms of automating tasks that were previously manual? I think that's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, huge opportunity. Uh, my go-to for this is a couple of uh, reports that were generated by McKinsey one earlier in April this year, and it's the economic potential of generative AI. And they evaluated multiple different verticals and looked at the specific task items that are performed within that vertical that could be impacted by AI. So uh, we'll share a link to that with this podcast. But in there, there is a small piece around data management. And they assessed the impact of just AI before generative AI. They said, within the next four to five years, 70% of all the all, all of the capabilities that and that, uh, that fall under the umbrella of data management, 70% of those would be impacted by AI one way or another. With the new report on generative AI, they now raised it to 90 plus percent. So essentially the way we do data management today is going to be obsolete. It's going to be superseded by capabilities that are smarter, better, more efficient, and really allow us to get our arms around this massive amount of data, right? The three Vs of data, which grew into the nine Vs of data. It, it, it really is a problem that needs exponential solutions. And I think generative AI really offers that, yeah? So if you think about the traditional extract, transform, load, like anywhere in the data universe, that is the constant, right? So in terms of that whole pipeline, the ingestion of data, the recognition of what you're ingesting, 
classification of that into and labeling of that data into sets that can then be treated intelligently. For example, a lot of effort goes into creating the right models, the right data models that can then be consumed downstream. Why does that need to happen in my hand? If you understand what the data is, if you understand what the business intent is of ingesting that data, the modeling should be a relatively straightforward and automated process, right? On the other hand, for test purposes, and not even thinking about AI models, but just for test purposes, there's a lot of synthetic data that is generated. And it's a hard problem because generating realistic data that is structurally equivalent to what you would actually get in a real world scenario, that's a hard problem. Um, generative AI is really good at this point in generating data sets that represent reality more than something you would generate through existing methods, right? So that's a that's another big area of change. But I think what is the most interesting to me is the broader implication of having these generative uh, models and the fact that they are amplifiers for biases or flaws in the input data. And it's really hard to reason through why they reached a particular conclusion unless you can trace it back to certain pieces of data that caused that bias to appear in the first place, right? The broader implications in terms of having training data that is trusted, that is reliable, that then leads to models that are high fidelity. Whether you're training or you're tuning these models, you, you have to depend on your own data set to give them context for your business, right? And then taking the output of, let's say you, you have, you're using Llama or any other model that is just available out there. Mm-hmm. That inference has to act on a data set to produce value for your business, right? For example, if you're if for marketing purposes, you are uh, generating a list of customers, you're segmenting customers to then activate by sending them an email to encourage them to a particular sale in, let's say, the retail segment. You need a reliable set of data, trusted set of data to which you can apply that inference, create that segmentation and push that activation out. That really doesn't change whether the model acting on this is a simple statistical model, it's a human being or it's generative AI. So it's really this sort of this overlap between the generative AI speeding up all of these capabilities and its reliance on data, both for for bias-free creation and training of these models, as well as the activation of what comes out of it. You said a lot of stuff and I really appreciate that. And it's really good, but, and and you gave one kind of example and I really appreciate examples. Can you provide a few more examples of how LLMs have improved data accessibility and efficiency with within organizations? Yeah, absolutely. And that impact is being felt today, right? That's not yeah. a future thing, right? That, that we are at the, we're climbing the crest of that impact right now. And where it really stems from is that 90%, I think we've done surveys, we've seen this from other parties, that 90% of even the structured data that is part of our most of our data landscapes is just locked away, or it, it doesn't actually generate any value. And structured data itself is a very small part of the overall data landscape, right? You may know the exact numbers, or at least the last service, Chris, but I remember being 80-some percent of data is unstructured yeah. in any given company. And the biggest benefit, I think, of generative AI is immediately to be able to parse and extract some value out of that data without having to put just stupendous amount of 
work into into making that happen, right? Uh, a simple example of that is to to create an email. It takes now an eloquent email explaining your case. It takes just a minimal amount of time, right? That's right. But now think about it on the other side. Person receiving that email can also summarize it back down to what is the main central point of your email, right? Mm -hmm. And so suddenly the amount of data is transmitting the wire is probably quite a bit because you generated it on the one end, but it becomes much easier to uh, consume that large amount of data as well on the other end. So I think it's this sort of unique property where you can use these models on both ends of a conversation and not even, we haven't even talked about multimodal models yet. So this is just pure text. So yeah. imagine the 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 amount of efficiency that can be driven in in especially for information workers just using code generation translation capabilities first draft generation and summarization just these four things right that's that's a very large amount of value creation that is happening right now extremely helpful and i feel like there's probably two or three podcasts that we can do on that one trend and, and right. we will do more but i want to go to the next one and something I know you're very passionate about, and we'll do another podcast specifically around each trend, but is this concept of data mesh. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, one, tell us a little bit about data mesh and tell us a little bit around how does the concept enhance data governance while still providing autonomy to individual teams? It really began as a reaction to how we were structuring these data pipelines. Like everything in data goes back to data pipelines. Right. Yep. And so if you think about what is still happening for most enterprises uh, out there is data is generated in these transactional systems, whether they be your e your website or your billing or warehousing systems. And those then get shipped into one format, one form or another into your data warehouse or your lake house or whatever the analytical end of your data landscape. And then there is a consumption step, whether that the consumption is through reports or it's through an API to some other downstream systems and so on. But typically there are very different teams that are operating the operational systems that are creating data versus the ETL teams that are getting data from the operational systems to the warehouse versus the people who are responsible for generating value reports, i.e. value from the warehousing system, right? And what happens is along that path, you just lose context every step of the way. So Zamak's insight is to think about both, not just the technical change that needs to happen to help with this flow of context, but really think about it as a socio-technical problem, i.e. what organizational structure would support uh, a technology that then allows this context to go all the way from end to end. And what, what do I mean by context? Very simple, right? It may mean that what is, what is the definition of a customer for you, right? In your e-commerce system, is a customer somebody who's visiting your web page? Is a customer somebody who has a login? Or is a customer somebody who's actually made a purchase in the past, right? So yeah. very simple thing, but unless the definition is the same in your operational, ETL, warehouse, and reporting contexts, you're not going to be able to produce a reliable report at the end, which allows you to close your business um, um, confidently, right? And so this leads to problems like, how many customers do we have? Depends on how you define a customer, right? I and, remember, and <laughs> just quickly is, 
One of our CDOs, you don't mind that I say this, is Joe DeSantos mm -hmm. mentioned, that was the single hardest thing to do within the organization right. is to come up with the definition of what a customer really is. And so I think you're you're exactly right. Keep going, right. sorry. And, and of course, right? And and it's not just the definition of a customer, but then also who owns the customer? How who do you update that definition as you perhaps acquire businesses and or create new business units and so on and so forth? So it, it's, and the bigger you are as an enterprise, the bigger this problem is. Yeah. So back to the data mesh piece and, and the proposed solution there is really to think about the people who are generating the data as having the most context about that data, right? And as an organization, decentralizing uh, the, the, the at, at least the technology decentralizing that so that the organization closest to generating the data can produce the most authoritative information about that data, right? It really is about decentralizing the business into something that we know really well, which is data domains, different yep. domains that may be a customer domain in the example we just used, or it may be a parts domain, or it may be a supplier domain, right? And everybody will slice and dice these things differently. The other piece is then to create these teams that are autonomous, right? And then try to create these teams that map to this data domain concept. And they really are the experts in that domain. And they publish both the data and also the metadata about that data set, which then informs everybody else in the landscape on how to consume that data, how fresh is that data, how not to consume that data, right? And then over time, it, it becomes more of a, less of a organizational problem and also more of a technical question like, okay, but where do we publish this data and so on, right? So there is a concept of a self-serve data platform that technically provides the underlying capabilities that are required for some of the concepts that we talked about. But finally, I'm getting to the question you asked, which is how does it work? How does it help with governance? Yeah. And I think the, the pillar there is around, again, conceptually, it's the same thing. If you understand what the data is intended for, how it was produced, how frequently it's updated, what is latest copy of that data set and so on, applying governance to that becomes much easier because now you have the context that's carried with the data. You understand who owns that data. And if as a, let's say a, a data steward or an auditor in a different part of the company, you have a question about it, or you want some change made to a certain part of that data set, it's so much easier to go carry that out at this point. Thanks, Anch. And, and I know you're very passionate about that. And you and I actually have a podcast that will be coming out soon about data mesh and we'll go deeper into that data mesh concept and thinking. But the other trend, and maybe it's more than just a trend, is this thought around data unification. Right. From your kind of thinking, what, what are the most significant challenges organizations face when attempting to unify data from multiple disparate sources? The question I ask around this is, where does broken data come from? Right. What are the sources of, of, of fragmented data that really then there is a need to unify that source back. So there's a very interesting, so Scott Taylor, the data whisperer, he's done a number of very interesting talks, but the latest one he did at uh, Big Data London, and we'll have a link to that here at the bottom. He take, talks about an experiment where a company had their employees input all variations of, or they just said, type in 7-Eleven. Right. Yep. And that was part of a bigger form. And they just wanted to see this. how much variation they could create in that single field. Right. Uh -huh. 
I found it. It was a slide full of eight point font, just different renditions of what people put in as 7-Eleven when they heard 7-Eleven, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one example of where the intent is to get something entered one way, but it just comes in 300 different variations of the theme. Then you take the next step. You say large corporations will would have grown over many years through perhaps through acquisition, the corporate structure changes over time. And so data gets fragmented just along the lines of the organization. And we were just talking about the customer example, but think about suppliers, think about locations, if there's physical assets, all of that gets, all of that gets fragmented, but it gets fragmented for valid reasons. It's not like somebody wakes up in the morning and goes, okay, I got to create fragmentation. The third, <laughs> I, I am going to fragment my data today, right? <laughs> The third source, which is a big driver, is the sassification of our enterprises, or to coin a term, coin, coin a phrase. But in other words, the more applications you have that are that sort of rely on their own understanding of what the customer list is, again, simple example, the more customer list you will have, right? And so the reasons for fragmentation, therefore, they're locked. They're all valid business reasons. And therefore, there is a need for, an, for a technology or, or a group of technologies that are able to put that data back together to create this trusted uniform layer of data that can then be consumed reliably by other downstream applications without having to worry about all the fragmentation that happens upstream to, to which they, they don't need to have visibility or, or that's something that at least downstream applications can take as a given that the data that they're consuming is actionable, trusted data. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, the concept of data unification that we're starting to talk about as a broader umbrella. And underneath of that, there's multiple technologies, right? We know these technologies by multiple names. We The simplest version of that is entity resolution. Entity resolution being our two things or two addresses, two first names, two profiles of customers. Are they the same or not. And this really, it, it sounds uh, like a very simple concept, but a very powerful rendition of this. I was just reading this morning an article in Forbes about Sam Altman's next big idea is to create this universal ID. It's it's based on India's Aadhaar card system, which, which really is, is the equivalent of, think of it as a social security number on steroids. And every citizen of India has that number and they need that number for any transaction, right? And they need that identity card, which has biometric scanning for any transaction, public transaction, uh, whether that be financial or not. And so if you have a solution like that, if all of us had those numbers and it was socially acceptable to use that number to prove your identity, there would be no data fragmentation, at least for that space, right? It'd be really right. easy. Like, what is your number? Oh, great. Prove your, your you are you by biometric mm -hmm. identification and we're good to go. But in the real world, in across the world, that isn't the reality, right? So we need these systems that are really thinking about tying these fragments of information about identities, about different nouns, if you will, right? Pick Such any noun, suppliers and so on. Wow. And it, it is essential to how our businesses function. Yeah. And one other question, that, that was really good. I love that universal ID example. Can you share like an example of success, a success story where data unification had a tangible impact on an yeah. organization's business outcomes? 
yeah, there's so many examples that come to mind. But we'll talk today about one of our customers, an athletic apparel retailer, and they they decided early on to put Reltio in as that sort of trusted layer, which has an authoritative, which is the authoritative system for customer information. Mm-hmm. And over time, what that has allowed them to do is to build business processes, all these operational processes on top of a confidence, a very high confidence that has allowed them to do is to build applications on top of this very solid layer of information that is evergreen and has the latest and greatest information about their customers. So what do we mean by that? For example, if you walk into a physical store, you may have you, you may get help from an attendant who has an iPad and they ask you some basics about you, maybe your last name, maybe your email, and they're able to pull up your entire profile, your purchase history, they, they may be right there and then able to offer you a discount for a particular, a personalized discount, if you will, because you bought a certain mm-hmm. kind of apparel in the past, they could discount uh, a different color or a related piece of clothing, right? Now, if you want to return what you bought in the store online, their warehousing system has the same exact understanding of you as a customer. And therefore, there is there is no gap between the moment you bought something in the store and when they're ready to accept returns, right? If you, uh, and, and interestingly, this company acquired an unrelated business, which was in the exercise space, exercise equipment space. And um, as they ingested the business, they now have a much bigger set of customers. If you combine the, the existing customers of both businesses together, And they have an extensive program to then go cross-sell either apparel into the exercise space or vice versa. And they had exercise equipment in their physical stores. So all of this intermeshing is possible if you have this good understanding of their customer base right there, especially for those customers who happen to be existing customers of the two businesses before the merge. They got a very seamless experience because they knew exactly who those were and they treated them very different from a customer who was only on one side of the equation. That was really good. And it's funny that you bring that up is the ex- expected outcomes from a customer is mm-hmm. that whenever you go to a store, you buy something, but then you want to return it, but right. you return it online, even right. though there's two different systems, people don't understand that. The customers, right. I remember my wife being like, I don't care, fix right. it, figure it out. You should know who I am. That's right. just the expected outcome. from a customer, but it's not easy. I tell her all the time, I was like, look, it's not as easy as you say, I don't, and she's, I don't care. In marketing circles, we talk about personalization to an audience of one, right? And a lot of our customers are moving in that direction because they have the confidence that with a data layer that is consolidated and really truly is that one view of their customer, they can build multiple operational processes and and they're going to work seamlessly together, right? Yeah. There's so many examples I could give, but much. That's really all we have time for today is those three 2024 top trends. There's a few more that maybe we'll get to at some point soon, but it's been very good. And and everyone, thank you for coming and tuning in to another data-driven podcast. My name is Chris Detzel and I'm Anj Kanwar. Thanks, Anj.